0: Gospel is the good news. By faith alone your sin is imputed to Christ. By grace alone his act of obedience is imputed to you. Now there are always caveats and clarifications that are needed. And last week, we emphasized the fact that that is not saying that your activity and the fruit of your salvation is to be confused with the root of your salvation, that what happens to you after you are regenerated is not to be confused as a prerequisite for regeneration because... Regeneration, the giving of life to the soul, is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it precedes faith and repentance and obedience. It is the one who is dead in their trespasses and sins who is supernaturally made alive and given as a gift from God the faith to believe. And then, by the power of that same Spirit, the ability to bear fruit with respect to repentance and obedience. So, the gospel is the good news that by faith alone, your sin is imputed to Christ, and by grace alone, His active obedience to the law is imputed to you. Last week... I had a very good question after the service with respect to the difference between the imputation of the righteousness of Christ and the infusion of the righteousness of Christ. And it's really important for us to understand that as we get back into the book of Galatians because The Apostle Paul is being absolutely clear that the righteousness of Christ is given to you. It is clothing you, covering you. It is the wedding garment that makes you worthy to be at the feast. And that is very different than righteousness by the act of the church or some sacrament being infused into you the way that an IV would infuse fluids into your veins. Now, as you know, one of the sources that will most clearly articulate what the beliefs of our elders and pastoral staff is here with respect to good theology comes from the historic confessions. We are confessional in that Regard, though maybe not officially at the moment, but we are certainly in principle confessional. We uphold the creeds of the early church and we go to those confessions to clearly articulate the positions that we would hold on that which is most important. And so I would direct your attention to listening to section 11 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689, which says this, Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting them as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone." They are not justified because God reckons as their righteousness, either their faith, their believing, or any other act of evangelical obedience. They are justified wholly and solely because God imputes to them Christ's righteousness. He imputes to them Christ's active obedience to the whole law and his passive obedience in death. They receive Christ's righteousness by faith and rest on him. They do not possess or produce this faith themselves. It is the gift of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, then it means that By God's grace, you have exercised the faith given to him that you might have his active obedience to the law imputed to you so that you are no longer a lawbreaker in his mind. You are no longer lawless in his mind. You have fulfilled the law perfectly, which is what he demands. Do this and live. And you say, I can't and I didn't. Christ did. Christ did. It's the gospel. It's active obedience, but also his his passive. You say, what is that? Well, this isn't to be confusing. It is meant to say it is also that which he obeyed in the sense of being acted upon his suffering, his death, his willingness to put himself up as the propitiation, as the payment. Far more than just a sacrifice but an actual substitute and propitiation for our sin. That is what we understand to be the gospel. And that, brothers and sisters, is why <laughs> That's why we rest. That is why we rest. That is why next week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we will gather in joy, and we will celebrate, and we will not Lower the lights and we will not play sad music and we will not ask you to be introspective and inspect yourself and examine yourself whether or not you're worthy to take the Lord's Supper. Far from it. We will remind you that your worthiness comes from having Christ in you. And therefore, the Lord's Supper is a joyful time for us to celebrate what Christ has done for us and to demonstrate the rest and confidence and assurance we have based on His work, not ours. Amen? It's one of the most precious things about our church. And if you have been around here for any period of time, you'll know that's one of the things that makes it so special. Whenever people visit with us for the first time, I always hope it's on a Communion Sunday so that they can see what I think we really are and maybe something that makes us blessedly distinct. Well, as for this morning, we're going to pick up our story, Paul writing to the churches that met in homes in the Roman province called Galatia in and around the area of present-day Ankara, Turkey. So he's writing a letter. It's probably his first letter. It's very early on in his ministry. He's writing it to the house churches that gathered to be circulated among them in this little landlocked area in modern-day Turkey in and around the capital. It was a strategic location, one that he had visited early on in his ministry and he is, by his own admission, speechless. He's astonished. He's dumbfounded. He is, in, in, in the words of one English writer, uh, gobsmacked. I don't know what that means, but it, it sounds appropriate. This is what he would be. He, there's no words to describe what he's going through. He, he walks in and he is speechless at what has happened. That, that's so early on, they had not only rejected the gospel, but they were going as fast as they could in the other direction. They were, they were rapidly retreating from the good news of the gospel. And last week, what we saw is that there is only one God, and there is only one gospel, and that was going to be the main thrust and argument of the first nine verses. And over the next several weeks, 10 in total, we will look at the rest of this majestic piece of writing that by God's grace has been preserved for us. This morning, we pick up in verse 10. The title for the message is A Spectacle of Grace. The imputed righteousness of Christ is not the same as the idea of an infused righteousness. The main argument of this section from 10 through 24 that was read to you earlier is that God is pleased and glorified in the true gospel. In the, in the true gospel, he is both pleased and glorified. To begin with, in verses 10 through 14, we see that the gospel of God is in view. Follow along as we work our way through the text. Verse 10 for am I now seeking the approval? Approval means the ultimate acceptance. It means being said, well done, a pat on the back, Uh, being brought into the inner circle and and lauded for having done something well, having lived up to expectations. He says, am I going to try and do that now with men, or am I going to do that only for God? Uh, It's pretty obvious what Paul's answer would be, and that is he is willing to suffer for the sake of the true gospel. And so when he is called, even in Acts chapter 9, he is called not to an easy life, but he's actually called to a life of suffering. It's amazing that when Jesus says to him, you have only to imagine what I am going to call you to, and he says, suffer. I mean, he could have said a lot of other things. He could have focused on the travel. He could have focused on the crowds. He could have focused on the audience he was going to have with kings and princes. But instead, he makes it clear to Paul that if you're going to preach a clear, true, bold, loving gospel, it's going to result in your suffering. You're out there to please men. You're out there to please God. And that's what any of us need to be if we're honest preachers of the gospel, and so he was hated by the Jews and by the Gentiles. We know why he was hated by the Jews, of course, because he's upending their entire religious system and everything they had put their hope in, but he was also hated by the Gentiles because even the good news of salvation through faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone, requiring nothing on the part of those who receive that truth, no good works, no merit, Even in a world system that has no alternative, they hate it and they reject it. Why do people hate the gospel? It's not because they have a better religion in their mind. Jesus says they hate the gospel because they love their sin. And so this gospel that was preached was hated and caused Paul to be hated by everybody, both the Jews and the Gentiles. It's interesting to me that Paul asked the question, or am I trying to please man? I think Paul relates to us because there is a sense in which he wanted man's approval because he's just like us. We all do. We're all looking for man's approval on one level or another. Scripture calls it man-pleasing. It means that you want others to like you. You want them to affirm you. Uh, Maybe you've got this issue because you grew up with parents that were highly critical. They never seem to think much of you unless you lived up to some standard, some expectation. You've always been trying to please your parents. Or maybe you're always trying to please uh, your friend group, uh, other people in your sphere. Or maybe you're trying to uh, please or impress your professors or your boss. Some of you maybe said, no, not me, man. I, I don't care about anybody else. Not me, man. I'm, I'm on my own. I don't care. I couldn't care less, man. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. That tells me that you care most about what you think about you, and you are one of the most narcissistic people on the planet. You're all, you're all enslaved to it on one level or another. And so Paul says this with, with quite about, with clarity. He says, or am I trying to please man? He says, if I were still, still, not anymore. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul used to try to please man. He used to try to please man by being the best Pharisee on the planet. He used to try to please man by by getting ahead of everybody else to win every award, have every trophy. But he says, I don't do that anymore because now I'm a slave to Christ. The first key to identifying the gospel of God is to find a servant of Christ. Not a preacher, seeking to be well thought of, not a preacher trying to always do a good job in the eyes of others, but rather one who understands that those to whom he preaches are under the wrath of God and they need to be able to receive the pure gospel for the salvation of their souls and that isn't always well received. And yet, that's precisely what Paul is accused of. Paul is accused of man-pleasing. That is what these Wicked false teachers did when they came in to the Galatian churches right after Paul left. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, your life work, whatever it is that, that you've been contributing the best of your time and attention to. You've been building a business. Uh, you've been building a career. You've been growing a practice. You've been raising a family. You've been cultivating a farm. And everything that you have, the best of what you have and are, whether it's your time or your talent or your resources, it gets poured into that. And for a very short time, you're separated from it. And somebody or a group of people come in with the intention of utterly destroying it. They cut down every tree that you have been cultivating from a sapling. They send all of your patients to another doctor. They come in, they tell lies to your children and turn them against you. They go into your practice that you have been trying to create or your career that you've been trying to build, and they convince the people who are above you and below you in the hierarchy that you have done something unpardonable and you're utterly rejected. Beloved, that's what Paul is experiencing. He bled for these people. He would have died for these people. He brought them up from spiritual babies, and then he has to leave, and people are just waiting for him to go. They are on the perimeter. They're in the bushes. They just know that the minute he goes, they are going to slither in, and they're going to do everything they can to undermine the work that he's done. In his powerful commentary on this book, which was probably one of his favorites, Martin Luther talks about this, how... You can take 10 years to build into a fledgling congregation what it means to understand the gospel correctly and to practice the ordinances in a way that honors the Lord, and in one day somebody can come in and utterly destroy and undermine everything that you've done. It's much easier to destroy something than it is to build it up, right? Well, this is what's going on here, and that's why Paul's so astonished, And one of the reasons why they were successful at getting under their skin is because they were actually able to tie things to Paul's behavior that seemingly lent credibility to the accusation. You say, what would that be? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. I have a couple of times today heard... The importance of studying the book of Acts, and I would echo that. I think the book of Acts is one of the most underappreciated books in our Bible. In fact, if you understand Acts, you will really understand not only the gospel, but the the growth and the spread of the early church. But in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, Paul takes a Jewish vow and he shaves his head. In Acts, uh, sorry, I was Acts 18, 18. Um, In Acts 16, verse 3, you have the reason for why Paul has Timothy circumcised. That's in Acts 16, verse 3, sorry. He has Timothy circumcised. It certainly looks like Paul says, well, if you're going to really be a Christian, you've got to be under the law. Sorry, Timothy. You're a grown man. You want to come with me on the mission field? You've got to get circumcised. I mean, that's a commitment. And what about in Acts 18:18? This is when he takes a vow and he shaves his head, maybe a Nazarite vow. The same thing happens with these men that he was with, Acts 21, 13. And so the people in Galatia are saying, look, Paul preaches this gospel of freedom, but Paul doesn't seem very free because Paul goes around making his own guys shave their head and get circumcised. You see, there was some apparent credibility to it. Now, as we know, Paul goes on to clarify that he did that only because he didn't want to be an unnecessary offense to the Jews. He's trying to win the Jews. If you're trying to win your orthodox Jewish neighbor, you don't go next door to give him the gospel with a tract in one hand and a pork chop in the other. Like, it's just not helpful. And so when Paul is doing this, he's saying, I just, I don't want to cause a riot. I can't have these guys coming up into the temple uncircumcised or not obeying their vow. It's just going to cause a riot. That's not going to be good for the gospel. And Paul will defend himself in this little letter that, no, 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 the gospel I preached is never going to bring you back under bondage. What I did with some Jews was for the sake of not offending the Jews, and it was only temporary and for a purpose, I'm writing to you Gentiles saying, nobody has a right to pull you back into bondage of the law. That's what Acts 15 was all about. So... He continues on in verse 11, for I would have you know, and that's the word know, meaning know by experience, existential knowledge, not just head knowledge. I would have you know by experience, existentially, my brothers, my fellow Christians, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now, just stop there for a moment. I don't want you to misunderstand this. I want you to think carefully with me. When he says it's not man's gospel, he does not mean it's God's gospel and not a false gospel. Man's gospel doesn't necessarily mean a false gospel. Man's gospel means it was a gospel that you learned from man. So, just to make the contrast more visible to you, I am preaching to you man's gospel. I learned the gospel from man. I learned the gospel from many men and women. I learned the gospel from somebody else. So when Paul says that I am preaching to you a gospel that is not man's gospel, what he means is that this gospel came to him by direct revelation of God. It is man's gospel versus direct revelation, not Direct revelation or the true gospel versus another gospel. He didn't learn it from the apostles. He didn't learn it from the disciples. He's not preaching man's gospel that was taught to him. For, verse 12, I did not receive it from any man like a convert would, or like somebody else who learned the gospel from the disciples or the apostles. If you go back in your imagination, even to Acts chapter 9, I think it's verse 17, it is at that point that Ananias is used by God to lay hands on Paul, to give him back his sight, and to allow him visibly to be baptized with the Holy Spirit to confirm his apostleship and conversion to affirm that he would be one who would be permitted to go and speak for God as an apostle. But Ananias didn't give him the gospel. Ananias didn't present to him the truth that Paul embraced in order to be converted. Ananias was just used by God to further him along, to give him his sight back, and to show that he truly was converted. The gospel that converted him came from Jesus himself. So, He says, it didn't come from man, nor was I taught it by anybody, but the strongest contrast you can have in the Greek language, I received it. I received it. It came upon me. I can't remember where, but on two separate occasions this week, I I read of rather prominent theologians describing their conversion, and I believe accurately, not as something that they came upon, but as something that came upon them. That when they believed the gospel, it was the gospel coming upon them. It was God coming upon them, drawing them, convincing them, showing them, revealing himself to them. It wasn't something that they either stumbled upon or arrived at through incremental steps of higher learning, like some kind of Gnostic. And so in this way, Paul says, I received it. And it was through or by means of a revelation of Jesus Christ. His direct revelation. Now, it's amazing, isn't it? There are still people who want to tell you that they're getting revelation from God. There are still people who want to tell you that God is speaking to them. Now, I don't need to remind you of this because you know it already. You've been well taught. But brothers and sisters, just for the sake of repetition... The canon is closed. God is not giving new revelation. Jesus isn't calling. There is no more special revelation coming to us. No more special tongue speaking revelation going on. No more things that God is telling just one person and not somebody else. There are no more apostles. There are no more people that are delivering new fresh revelation. That sort of thing is what Paul talked about last week, that if you see a person coming even from among the apostles or an angel from heaven, and they preach a different gospel, that they are to be anathema. They are to be damned because there is no more revelation coming. It's closed. Now, in an effort to be Clear and compassionate, and honestly, in some ways, nudging some of us maybe from going too far the other way. The Holy Spirit is alive and active in every single true believer. Do you believe that? Amen? The Holy Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit indwells you, seals you, fills you. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. I do believe with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength that the Spirit of God is at work in His people giving them wisdom, giving them direction, calling to mind truths of God's word, affirming to them that they are children of God. Absolutely. So in no way am I wanting you to hear me say that that somehow it's just a cold dead orthodoxy that holds the written word independent from the life-giving nature of the spirit. Paul is going to spend from chapter 3 till the end of the chapter in Galatians beating us over the head with the reality of the Holy Spirit. So, make sure you come back and listen carefully, lest you think that I'm saying there's no power of the Spirit at work in the individual. It's the only power at work in the individual. Everything else is just mere self-discipline. So, he says to them that there is no way that there is anything outside of the revelation of Jesus Christ that brings him to repentance and faith and belief, regeneration. Four, he says, verse 13, you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Remember, he's still a Jew. He's just not in Judaism anymore. He's not trying to recover Judaism. He's not religious anymore. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He had total allegiance to the law, total allegiance to the pharisaical system, he was a sworn enemy of the gospel. And verse 14 says that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many his own age, even among his own people. So extremely zealous was I for what? The traditions of my fathers. Paul loved tradition. You see, the very backbone of Pharisaic Judaism was taking the good, holy, moral law of God and imposing upon it and inappropriately drawing from it, man-made regulations that they would impose on their fellow Jews as a way to control them. And this is what Paul says I was an expert in. Paul was an expert in man-made laws and traditions. He goes on to describe this in detail in Philippians 3, 1 to 11. And I know for a fact that some of you sitting in this room right now, some of you have come out of traditions that you once thought were good. You came out of something you used to think it was good. It was man-made traditions. It was legalism. It was unbiblical restrictions on your liberty as a Christian. And you've come out of it now. You're, You're free. But you understand what Paul was going through. You understand how easy it is to get into a system like that. But now, by God's grace, you see that that was not the gospel of God, and as a result, you have a new appreciation for the gospel of grace. You understand grace. And, brothers and sisters, there are lots of professing Christians that are in bondage to something that is not grace. It's not. Denominations, religious systems external forces and authorities that try to get them to conform to man-made laws. I mean, I know there are people to this day that are still recovering from the influence of false teachers like Bill Gothard. There are professing Christians that to this day are still recovering from being beaten down under a law-based system in what used to be Christian fundamentalism, cultural Christianity and fundamentalism. I know that there's some of you who come into this place wounded by the traditions that you used to hold on to because someone told you they were biblical and you know how that happens, they twist the scriptures to say something that isn't true. And then they use the scriptures as a weapon against you. It's very, very common in abusive cults and in abusive denominations. But you believed it because somebody standing up on a stage wearing a tie, holding a big Bible, said that's what's true. And now you come out from under the canopy of that and you are experiencing grace for the first time. And it's almost hard to even get your bearings Well, that's what these Galatian believers were experiencing. And because of that natural inclination that we all have toward law, these false teachers were very successful. They said, don't worry, we'll bring in the guardrails because I know that's what you're looking for. And so what Paul is going to do in the second part of this section, as he rounds out chapter 1, is to talk about the gospel of grace. Let's follow along. Verse 15, but when he who had sent me apart, set me apart before I was born. Now, I prefer literally to translate this as it is here, which is from my mother's womb. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. This is my time to go off on the doctrine of election and Calvinism. Uh, but I'm not going to because uh, that, it's got nothing to do with the doctrine of election, I don't think. It has to do with God ordaining from the time that Paul was born that he was going to be set apart for the purpose of the preaching of the gospel. Uh, I don't think this is a blanket conversation about the doctrine of election or predestination. This, this is a specific case with Paul where he says, from my mother's womb, I know that I've been set apart. It's the same word for sanctified. You're sanctified once and for all. You're sanctified from one thing and into something else. And so Paul set apart from not having this role to being given this role. And it was God who set him apart to that and who called him, that effectual, irresistible call. Nothing he could do to Stop it. Now, that is a doctrine of grace, and he did that by his grace, not by any works, not by any righteousness that Paul had done or Saul at the time had done. It was all by his grace. So, just to review, from day one, God had set aside this man for that purpose, to be a preacher to the Gentiles, and therefore he called him, and it's a word that simply means to call, to call down or to call out, or to call up. And he calls him, and as a result, by his grace, rescues him and redeems him. And verse 16, he was pleased then to reveal his son to me in order that, and here's the purpose clause, why? Why did he reveal the son? Why did he reveal the gospel? Why did he open up Paul's eyes to realizing that it was Christ he was persecuting? He did that for the following reason, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. His specific calling was to the Gentiles. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, wouldn't you think that God would call Paul to preach to the Jews because he's already got all that Jewish street cred anyway? Wouldn't it be better for him to go preach to the Jews? I mean, Paul's already got all the Jewish credentials. He's got all the licenses, you know. He's, he's uh, certified to fly any plane. He can do whatever he wants in the Jewish world. He can get into all the unique clubs. Why wouldn't he have given Paul to the Jews. Well, we don't know the purposes and plans of God, but we do know for a fact that Paul saw himself as being called specifically not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And perhaps here's why, because he was able to tell the Gentiles that they don't need to follow anything in the Mosaic law in terms of the ceremonial or civil aspects of the law. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to respect the festivals. You don't need to avoid the, the foods that the Jews had to avoid. And he says it as a Jew. Not as a Gentile trying to get them not to become Jewish, but rather as a Jew. He says, I know, I'm certified, and I'm telling you, you don't need to do what my people are telling you you need to do. This was his mission. And so he gives it to the Gentiles. And as a result, I didn't, immediately consult with anybody without flesh. I didn't consult with flesh and blood. That's how the translation should read. I didn't consult with flesh and blood because Matthew 16, 17, when Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus turns to him and says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but this was revealed to you from God. I think Paul is playing off on that. Paul says, not just Peter, but I too was given something not from flesh and blood, but from God himself nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but in absolute contrast, I went away to Arabia. In the Roman Empire, Arabia, as he would have understood it, would be the northwestern part of what we look at today as Saudi Arabia. It's still Arabia, it's just run by the House of Saud. Back then, Roman Empire, northwestern section of what is Saudi Arabia. He says, I went down there, and then I returned again to Damascus, A province in Syria, an early church stronghold, probably around the city of Antioch, the same path he was on when he originally got saved. He says, and that's it. And then, going further in his autobiography, look at verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, he was one of the key leaders in the church, and remained with him 15 days This was an opportunity for him to explain the gospel that he was preaching. a gospel that didn't come from the apostles but came from Christ directly. And then verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. Now James is not one of the 12 apostles, but James is an apostle. Uh, He was one of the ones that was sent with a message of the truth. He was a writer of Holy Scripture. We just read his letter together not too long ago. And he was one of the key Leaders in the church as well. And Paul says, by putting himself under oath, verse 20, in what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. He's laying the groundwork for his reputation. It's a gospel of grace. Now he wraps up in the last few verses. He says, Then I went into the regions of Syria, which again is where ancient Antioch was, and Cilicia. This is sort of northwest of Antioch, if you were to look at it today on a map. Antioch was one of the key locations for the early church. It was a very important city, and Paul went up there to do ministry. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy what an awesome testimony, isn't it? (laughs) Here's Paul. They don't even know what to say about him. I don't even know how to describe what's going on with this guy, except that, yeah, that same one, Saul of Tarsus, the one that was imprisoning Christians, trying to kill Christians. That guy apparently got saved, and now he's preaching the gospel he was trying to destroy. Have you ever heard somebody who, who, who comes to Christ, believes the gospel, gets saved, but you know them because in their Former life, they were rather well known, maybe a celebrity, and they get saved, and you have that immediate sort of suspicion about it. I'm not sure that they're really saved. That was going on here with Paul. They're not sure about it. They're like, I'm going to have to see. Remember, he was on his way, the road to Damascus, going there to kill Christians. He goes back to Damascus, same road. Now he's a Christian. I guarantee you, if you're a Christian in Damascus and he's showing up, you're not like going to the welcome party. On a more serious note, consider this. Paul wrote letters to churches that had people in the gathering whose parents had been imprisoned and killed because of the attack Saul had on the early church. That kind of brings it home, doesn't it? There were people, for example, in the church of Thessalonica who had relatives who would have died in prison on account of the accusations that were brought against the man Saul, who is now Paul. Paul knows what it is like to have this horrible life of sin before and then to be redeemed by grace and and grace alone and then be able to live by the mercy and power and grace of God. So he says to them, look, I, I am the one who was trying to destroy it and now I'm trying to advance it. And you know that it's right because in verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. You know, a true gospel, note it, a true gospel, a gospel of grace, will always result in God receiving the glory. Always. A false gospel, on the other hand, is not false because it gives glory to man but because it gives man a part to play for which he will glorify himself. Man will glorify himself in any gospel that convinces him he had a part to play. He's worthy of some merit, some portion. And anything that robs God of his glory is false. Now, just like last week, I want to quickly conclude with some Warnings. How can we be led astray from the gospel? What's the modern context for us? First of all, I think we can go down this path inadvertently if we deny what is historical. If we forget where we came from. If we forget that we as a church didn't just pop up out of nowhere 50 years ago. That we don't have to go around and try to figure out how to do it all. We stand in a long line of faithful Christians You go back to the time that Paul is writing in the Roman Empire, it wasn't too long after he wrote that the centers of the Christian church were Rome and Constantinople or modern day Turkey, Alexandria and North Africa, Antioch, where we get our Armenian churches from in Syria, and then Jerusalem. There were these five hubs. We know because of church history that where we come from would be the Western church or the Roman church. They set themselves up as being preeminent over the rest of the churches, the rest of the bishops, and they created somebody called a pope. And in 1154, they separated, or 1054, they separated from the rest of the the churches, and they set up the, the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic, by the way, just means universal. We're all part of the Catholic Church, but they started the Roman Catholic Church, And in 1517, a monk who wasn't even converted yet put 95 arguments on the Wittenberg chapel door and began something called the Protestant Reformation. In 1520, he fully understood the gospel and began preaching that in the Reformed churches. I don't understand people who say they're not Reformed. If you're not Reformed, then you're Roman Catholic. You're one or the other. But the Reformed doctrines that were taught were then nurtured and cultivated in Germany and in England and in even parts of Switzerland under Zwingli. And then some of those people were kicked out of England and they came over to the colonies and what later became America. And most of what we descended from would be those colonial Puritans. And I mean, you can look at this church itself. The building you're sitting in was built in 1963, but the church itself was founded in 1947, And we can take ourselves all the way back from here, where we sit today, all the way through those various iterations of the church, all the way back and see that we are part of a long line of Christians who have believed various things at various times about various secondary matters. But to deny what is historical gives you this sort of temptation to think you just started out of nowhere right here, and you've got to adopt some pragmatic way of getting Christianity off the ground. Secondly, I think you can discount the tradition As I referenced earlier, we have creeds and confessions that were formulated by some of the best and sharpest minds in Christianity at the time. Sometimes a hundred scholars come together for years to craft these documents, and sadly, Christians today uh, discard them as if they're irrelevant so that they can write their own doctrinal statement by one man over a weekend. If we discount and reject the tradition good tradition, not Paul's kind of tradition of something that's a false gospel, but good tradition, healthy tradition helps us to understand where we came from. It's a preservation effect on the gospel. And then finally, we can demand the sentimental. Maybe you grew up with something that you just think is inherently churchish, modern icons, things that you think every church ought to have, It's got to have stained glass windows, it's got to have an organ, it's got to have a choir, it's got to have those golden plates that get passed, it's got to, whatever, you fill in the blank. And you say, this is the thing that we have to have or else it's not an acceptable church. Concepts of worship, affinities for certain translations of the Bible, loyalty to a certain celebrity Bible teacher over against the elders and teachers you've been given in your local church. Whatever it is, there can be a sentimental attachment to something that can actually pull you away from a true gospel, and those into whose care you have been entrusted to protect it. So, brothers and sisters, I think that I'm channeling Paul's heart in this. I'm not angry. I'm not bitter. Um, I'm not uh, uh, calling you fools. But I am saying that we ought to be able to have enough humility to receive this and question, are we doing something foolish? Are we doing anything that would be akin to choosing tradition over truth? Have we forgot our roots or do we not even care? Have we made something else central instead of the gospel? Can we be humble enough to admit that if it could happen to them with Paul as their apostolic pastor, that it could very well happen to us? And can we with humility just go back to a simple, proclamation of the gospel of grace that says by faith our sin is imputed to Christ and paid for once and for all completely never to be brought up again against us and by grace alone his righteousness is imputed to us clothing us that we become welcome participants in the great feast and banquet that we are the ones who by his mercy and grace alone have been made alive in the spirit that we might activate the gift of faith given to us and now in gratitude for what he has done, live lives of determined effort, absolutely by the power of the Holy Spirit, to live in a way that cultivates personal holiness and gratitude in obedience. If that's our goal, then we will understand these warnings in light of the gospel and be able to receive and be confronted by and corrected by what we need to be confronted by and glory in what we give thanks to God for doing in our midst. Our Father in heaven, please help us to do this better each week. Thank you for this letter and for the clarity with which Paul writes. He is obviously filled with strong emotion as he writes this letter. He deeply desires those Galatian Christians to be reacquainted with a clear gospel that it is not based on merit earned prior to conversion. It is not held secure by merit performed after conversion, but it is only by the grace of God through the finished work of Christ applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask that by your mercy, you would re-engage our attention to these matters and cause our church to grow, and to flourish, and to be careful not to embrace anything that would cause you to look at us and say, oh, foolish members of Tri-City Bible Church. We pray this for your glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen.